So Genesis 2, beginning at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the, of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God, Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So far the word of God. Well, uh, good to keep your Bibles uh, at hand this morning. Um, We'll be looking at a few passages, a few texts uh, this morning, and uh, some of them I'll read out, some of them we'll look up together. Um, This morning we are starting a new series, uh, and that series is called Got Questions. And it's a series in which we're going to think about and explore from God's Word um, some of the questions and issues that we, uh, as followers of Jesus in the 21st century in Australia, what we particularly uh, struggle with, wrestle with, and have to think about. Uh, Over the next couple of uh, sermons in the series, we're going to particularly be dealing um, with some of the questions around life. Um, What is life? Where does it come from? How do we treat it? And particularly, we're going to be looking at some of the issues around the end of life and issues of the start of life. But today, we're going to start this series uh, by looking at the question or the issue of same-sex marriage and really asking the question, uh, how do we, as followers of Jesus, respond to this issue and this debate that is going on at the moment? Now, as we begin, or before we really begin in earnest, I, I, I guess I want to lay a few of my own personal convictions uh, on the table. And one of them will be no, probably no surprise, and the other two might be a little bit more uh, surprising. Uh, my first uh, personal conviction is this, that the Bible's understanding of marriage, and therefore God's understanding of marriage, is between one man and one woman to the exclusion of others for life. I believe that that is what the Bible says uh, marriage is. And it's probably no surprises there. Uh, And my presumption is, as we go through this, that many of us um, hold that same position. My second personal conviction, maybe not held as strongly, is this. That one day, Australia will adopt same-sex marriage. Uh, one day, whether that's now or down the track, uh, I think that Australia will go that direction. And that's not me being pessimistic. 
It's not me denying the sovereignty of God and his power that he can do anything. He, he can do anything. But my assumption is that one day it'll happen. And it won't be the death of Australia. And it won't be the end of the world. And what it will do is it will remind us as a churches and as Christians that we don't live in a Christian country and we're not at the center of society. We're actually on the fringe. And my third personal conviction, and I hold this one strongly, is that the way we engage in this debate, the way we conduct ourselves, is actually just as important as what we have to say, our stance and the outcome. The way we engage in this debate says something very clearly about Jesus, about his work, about God's grace, about God's authority and his power, and also something about the work that Jesus has done. And so we want to think not only about what we believe in, what we think is right, but how do we engage in the discussion and then the debate. All right, with those three uh, on the table, um, we're going to pray. You do know that anything that the preacher says before the prayer doesn't count in his time limit. So I just got four free minutes. So uh, let's pray and then we can, uh, then we can begin properly. Uh, Lord God, we do thank you um, that we can be here today and we can think um, from your word about this very uh, relevant, this very serious issue. Uh, Lord, one that has occupied our thoughts uh, for some time, and one, Lord, that we desire that you speak to us clearly on. We pray, Lord God, that uh, you would reveal to us your truth this morning, the truth about marriage, but also the truth about our place, our role in society. Lord, that we might live and speak and conduct ourselves in a way that honors you and honors the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I guess we might start this uh, morning by asking the question, why are we doing a sermon on same-sex marriage? Well, I would suggest that you'd have to have your head under a rock for the last uh, few years uh, to not realize that this is something that very much occupies us as a society on many different levels. It's a political discussion. It's a social discussion. And for many people, uh, it is an issue of justice. It is a question and a topic uh, which is occupying our minds, our thoughts, our print media, uh, and in many different ways. And we are often being told uh, that if we hold a view that is against the popular opinion, uh, we are bigots, we are hateful, we are the new racists. And you will even notice, if you read your news over the last few days, there has been a case where a printing company has refused to print a book which comes out in support of traditional biblical marriage. People are arguing, is that a relevant thing or is that not a relevant thing to do? Now, before 1961, marriage in Australia was overseen by all the different states and territories. And until 1961, at 1961, there were nine pieces of legislation um, which governed marriage in Australia. Uh, sometimes these contradicted each other, depending on which state you were in, which territory you were in, depended on what you could do. So in 1961, the federal government at the time introduced the Marriage Act. 
and basically took that governance off all the states and territories and landed it fair and square with the federal government. It's interesting that that legislation in 1961 did not actually give a formal definition of what marriage is. It implied it. Uh, It implied it in the rights that the celebrant was to use in a marriage. They were to say, marriage, according to law in Australia, is the union of a man and a woman to the exclusion of others voluntarily entered into for life. That was then the legal understanding that Australia had, the legal definition of what a marriage is. Now, in 2004, the Howard government then introduced and passed the Marriage uh, Amendment Act of 2004. This act now also recognized de facto relationships and it recognized civil unions uh, and it also recognized same-sex relationships. But it specifically did not recognize same-sex marriages. In fact, very clearly it was put in the legislation that this was not the case. There was an amendment that was made and it said this, marriage means the union of a man and a woman to the exclusion of all others, voluntarily entered into for life. Certain unions are not marriages, it went on to say. A union solemnized by a foreign country between A, a man and another man, or B, a woman and another woman, must not be recognized as marriage in Australia. That was 2004. And interestingly, while there was a little bit of civil, a little bit of social uh, unrest about there, there was almost zero political will to do anything different than that. Well, what a journey we have come from in 12 years. In that time, 11 different pieces of legislation have been introduced in Parliament to amend it. Nine into the Senate and two into the House of Representatives. All of them, if they've got to the vote, and not many of them have, uh, have been defeated. Uh, During that time, Uh, we are told, society's opinion on the matter has changed. Uh, If the the latest polls are to be believed, and they vary in numbers, but consistently we are being told 60% of Australians uh, now are in support of same-sex marriage. Also during that time, in 2013, the Australian Capital Territory decided to go it alone. And they decided that from December the 7th, uh, 2013, they would allow same-sex marriages. And so a few minutes past midnight on December the 7th, Mr. Joel Player and Mr. Alan Wright became Australia's first legally married same-sex couple. However, six days later, the High Court overturned the ACT's decision and all marriages conducted same-sex were annulled. One of the two major parties now has promised that when they get into power, they will make an issue, a vote, in the parliament within the first 100 days of power. They are using the same language uh, that was used for the saying sorry to the stolen generation. In the first 100 days of power, uh, we will do that. Our current government now has on the agenda a public plebiscite. That's a vote, a non-binding vote which helps inform the parliament on what they should do. Publicly and in the media, uh, we are being told that this will happen. Um, It's just a matter of time. It is going to come about. And if you're not for it, you are on the wrong side of history 
and you are probably quite unloving as well. Well, let's start then, uh, as we think about that, about what the Bible actually has to say then about marriage. Is this a position that we, as followers of Jesus, can support? We start with the Bible because we believe that God's, the Bible is God's word to us. And if you don't believe that the Bible is God's word to us, then you'll probably find this bit maybe a little bit irrelevant. But as followers of Jesus, we believe that God has spoken clearly and he has spoken with authority on matters to do with faith and with life. And so we want to go to God's word and to see what God says then about marriage. And the first time we read about marriage is actually then in this passage that Alvin read for us in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Now, Genesis chapter 1 and 2 have a whole lot of complementary things, different but complementary things that go together. And if you read it through, it's, it's, it's awesome. You have night and day. Different but complementary. They, they go together. You have land uh, and water. Different but complementary. You have dry land and you have water. Different but complementary. They go together. But at Genesis 2.18, there is a problem. Not that God made a mistake, but that creation is not complete. Because for the man who has been created, Adam, there is not the different but complementary. God says there in chapter 2, uh, verse 18, I will make him a helper fit for him. There's going to be a complement for Adam. Now what God does then is he brings all of the animals to Adam. And Adam has this wonderful job of naming all of the creatures that God brings before him. And it says very specifically at the end of that, but for Adam, uh, but for Adam, there was no, not found a helper fit for him. There was no different but complement for Adam. And so then God gives an incredibly gracious gift. Out of Adam, he forms the different but complement. He forms Eve. And he brings the two together. You notice that Adam doesn't go looking for a wife or Eve doesn't go looking for a husband. God brings the two different but complement together. And he says to them, uh, and he, now, no, he doesn't say to them. Then what happens is that the teller of the story, who, who we think is Moses, he gives us an editorial note at this point, at verse 24. Therefore, he says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This different but complement of Adam and Eve brought together now becomes the model for marriage. This becomes what God says is his ideal, his plan, his purpose for men and for women brought together in marriage. Now what we have throughout the Bible is this consistently repeated. Maybe you just want to flick over in your Bible with me to the New Testament, uh, to the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. 
where the question is brought to Jesus then about divorce. Jesus says, answered in verse 4, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them, um, made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. What does, God do, what does Jesus do here in, in Matthew chapter 19? He affirms the good design that God has given in creation. And even though sin has entered this world, and even though there are all sorts of funky and different things happening, he reaffirms that marriage in God's design is one man and one woman. And so in Titus chapter 1, verse 6, uh, when Paul is writing to Titus and he's talking about who should be an elder in the church, he says they should be according to God's design for marriage. They should be a husband of one wife. Now, at this point, uh, sometimes, maybe often, uh, the question gets raised, what do we do then about polygamous marriages? So if we're saying that marriage is one man and one woman to the exclusion of others for life, uh, how do we deal with the polygamous marriages in the Old Testament? Because if we don't deal with them, then maybe we have to deal with all sorts of other types of marriages as well. Now, we don't have time to go through all of it, but let me just say this. There are over 40 recorded polygamous marriages in the Old Testament. And out of the ones that are recorded, and they go into the most detail... <laughs> They are a mess. They are very clearly not God's intended design for the family. Now, some of the suggestions that have been given is that God, and these are probably got worth exploring deeper at some point, God doesn't command polygamous marriages, but he does make provision for them. And Possibly, maybe, probably, he makes provision for them so that the weaker and the most vulnerable in society, thinking ancient Near Eastern culture 4,000 years ago, single women without a family could be provided for by a husband. And the laws that God puts in place around polygamous marriages uh, make that clear that he is wanting to provide protection for them. But it also very clearly states in Deuteronomy 17, 17, that the king, even the king, must not take many wives or else his heart will be drawn away. It's not part of God's perfect design, but something for a while it appears that God allowed to take care of some of the weaker and the most vulnerable in society. Now, it's in the context then of marriage, one man and one woman, that God designs sexual intimacy to take place. This one fleshing of Genesis chapter 2, the greatest expression of different but complementary coming together. This thing which expresses love and commitment, this thing that builds love and commitment, has built into it the very future of the human race because it's the very thing which is designed to bring about the next generation. 
And so God gives this wonderful, great gift of marriage. And into that gift of marriage, he throws physical intimacy. And he says, that's where physical intimacy is designed to take place. And so what the Bible does then is it defines all sexual activity outside of that marriage as sin. Whether that be fornication, sex before marriage, whether it be adultery, sex with somebody who is not your husband or your wife, whether it be abuse or homosexual activity, all of it is defined then by God as sin. Marriage between a man and a woman becomes the context for sexual intimacy to take place. Now, we've got to be honest. Nowhere, nowhere in the Bible does it specifically say anything against same-sex marriage. We cannot point to chapter and verse and says, here, see, God specifically addresses it and he specifically condemns it. But we can say with great certainty that the picture of marriage that God builds up is between one man and one woman, different but complement, brought together for life to the exclusion of all others. And that in the context of that marriage, sexual intimacy takes place. Now let me just, let me just say a couple of things um, around that for a moment because this is a point at which what we believe can seem very stark and can sometimes be misunderstood and misinterpreted. And so we want to be very clear here. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that same-sex attraction, physical or sexual attraction to the person of the same sex is a sin. Nowhere does it say that homosexual orientation is of itself sinful. I believe very firmly that you can be a Christian saved by Jesus, have a brand new heart and be filled with the Holy Spirit and still wrestle with and struggle with same-sex attraction. And that... That may, over time, God might change that. He, he might not. But you can be a Christian and wrestle with this. We should be very careful about the way that we talk about and talk to people who wrestle and struggle with this. Because we don't want to give the impression that simply the orientation, the struggle, is sinful in itself. I also want to say, and we also need to say, that homosexual sin is not the worst sin. And it's not the unforgivable sin. Can we say that homosexual sin is worse than my heterosexual sin? No way. All sexual activity outside of marriage is all sin. Does, does the homosexual person find it harder to be saved than the heterosexual person? Absolutely not. 
do I have the right to look down and judge someone who struggles with homosexual sin because my sin is heterosexual? Absolutely not. It's very important that we are clear on this. Because there are ways in entering this debate which can give the idea that homosexual sin and same-sex marriage is the worst of all abominations. And it's not. We believe in a God who has graciously come to redeem and save all sorts of brokenness and all sorts of sin and all sorts of rebellion. And no person and no sin is outside of his care and is beyond, is beyond redemption and is beyond his work. So can I, can I say this? And it needs to be said. If you're a person uh, who struggles with same-sex attraction, and research is correct, that's about 16% of us at some point or another in our lives will wrestle, struggle with same-sex attraction. That's one in about six of us. So if you're a person, you are not alone. You are not a freak. You're not beyond the love and the care of God. You are a person created in the image of God. And I don't know all the reasons why you wrestle and struggle with what you wrestle with. But you are not alone in it. There is no special place in hell reserved for you. There is generous, gracious redemption and forgiveness by Jesus. And if you're a person who's not just wrestled with it, but has fallen in homosexual sin, you are not beyond the love and the grace and the care of God. Jesus came to save sinners. He came to rescue broken that includes me, and that includes you too. Now at this point, there are, there are people uh, who want to argue same-sex marriage from the Bible. There are, there are people who, who want to say what the Bible talks about is not monogamous same-sex relationships. All the Bible knows about is promiscuous uh, same-sex uh, attraction and activity. And God is more about love than he is about rules. And the loving thing to do is to just allow it for people. Or God's kingdom is moving forward. And it's left that behind. It's moving forward into a new area of freedom and openness and respect. There are plenty of Christians, and if you Google it, you'll find plenty of it on the internet supporting these positions as well. I want to say that if we start to go down that line, I think we have begun to leave God's word as God's authoritative word for us. We are reading into it 
cultural interpretations and devising it to adjust to a new situation. God's word clearly talks about marriage as one man and one woman in which is the context for sexual intimacy. Well, if that's what the Bible says, then how do we engage in this debate? It's not going to go away. It's there. How do we, how do we respond to it? Well, I want to suggest there's three options that we have, and I'm going to reject the first two and go for the third. The first option is this. We say, well, this is what we believe and what we will practice, but the rest of the world can believe and practice what it wants. And so in the church, we will uphold traditional biblical marriage as we understand it. The world can go and do what it wants, and we'll just do our own thing. And we already have so many differences on so many different issues with the rest of the world. Why not just have one more, and we'll just keep quiet about the issue? It will keep us out of trouble. Uh, people won't look down on us for it. We can, we can just keep it to ourselves. I'm going to come to reject that in a minute. I won't tell you why, but let's put that to one side. On the other side of, of the equation is that we have to do everything we can to stop this in our society. And we have to take whatever measures are possible to make sure that this doesn't come into our country. And if it needs to be civil disobedience, we will be civilly disobedient. We will never accept same-sex marriage. We will placard same-sex marriages. We will refuse to recognize them. We will refuse to attend same-sex marriages. That's on the other extreme. And I want to reject that one as well. The way we answer this question is determined by what we see to be our role as followers of Jesus in society. And what we see as God doing in and through us in this world for his kingdom. And I want to suggest that God neither calls us to isolate and just do our own thing, and neither does he call us to demand ourselves at the center of society, always legislating morality. In Matthew chapter 5, God says, Jesus says this. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. Jesus describes his people in his kingdom as salt and light. Those who show the truth of Jesus, the light to the world, and those who are good, positive for the society around about them. And at the end of that, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Similarly, in Luke chapter 6, we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus is talking about his new kingdom. What does he say? He says, love those Love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we read this. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. What's, what's the picture here? The picture here is of people of the kingdom, people who belong to Jesus, living good lives, loving those around about them, 
shining out the light of Jesus. For what purpose? So that people might come to know and honor and love and serve God. That's not hiding away, let's do our own thing and everybody else can do theirs. And it's not, we're at the center of society and everybody has to do what we say. This is, God has made us to be influence here. Salt and light influence for the kingdom. In love of others. Serving others. So that people might come to know Jesus. So we will speak out. We will say what we believe to be good and true and best. Because if we believe that God says it's good and true and best for people that we love. And so we want to make that known. And some of us will be called to do that publicly. We might write letters to the editor. We might write articles. We might ring the radio station when it's on. Some of us will do that publicly. And and others of us will do that privately. We, we will speak about what we believe and we'll talk about what has been given to us in Jesus. And we'll do that for two reasons. First of all, because we love people and in loving people we particularly take care of the weakest and the most vulnerable in our society. And when it comes to the question of same-sex marriage, the weakest and the vulnerable that we are speaking out on behalf of is children. Now this, I understand, is a controversial subject and a controversial topic. But the Bible's picture of a marriage and a family is of a child growing up with the different but complementary nurture of love of both a mum and a dad. And no matter how good and loving a mum and a mum or a dad and a dad might seek to be, it won't have the same different but complementary love and nurture of man and a woman. And that is the best, healthiest, God-designed context for a child to grow up. Now, hear, hear me out here. This is not saying that a mum, a single parent, or a dad as a single parent, cannot do an awesome, a fantastic job at raising children. And I, I know that there are, there are people in here who have been brought up by single parents and they have been given absolutely everything. And their parents have been champions at it. And there are people in this church who are raising their kids as single parents and are doing a fantastic job. This is not saying that at all. But it's saying that God's design, his ideal, is for kids to grow up with the love and the nurture and the support that is different from mum and from dad. And so when we stand up and we say, this is what we believe is true and best, we are standing up on the side of the weakest and most vulnerable in this discussion, those who have no say on the issue, standing up 
the children. That's the first reason why we speak. And the second reason is this, and it's also because of love, and it flows on from that. And the, the reason is this. It's because actually speaking about this issue actually gives us an opportunity to speak about Jesus. We actually have in this debate going on around us all these opportunities to speak about God. To speak about his word and why we, why we read his word and why we consider it to be the authority. And that we believe in a God to whom we are accountable and who has given us his design and his plan for life. And a God who has come to do something about our brokenness. My brokenness. A God who is loving and gracious and kind and has revealed that so wonderfully and so clearly in Jesus Christ. We speak about this issue because it provides an opportunity for us to speak about the great things that God has done for us in Jesus. Well, finally, let's go and wrap up. And I know this has gone too long. Uh, i just say thank you for paying attention. Um, let me just close uh, with four things about how we engage now um, in this discussion. Um, firstly, um, we, we, engage and we, we, we engage in it by being prepared. Uh, we are going to be asked, what do we believe about this? So please prepare yourselves to answer that question. About 12 months ago, we had a, we had a night. We got together. Uh, we produced some paperwork that's still available, um, sort of outlined some things that you can keep in mind, um, some passages you can have, and some reasons why you can give people. Um, I would encourage you maybe to look at that or look at some other stuff that you've got. Be prepared. But also be prepared in that to be accused of doing wrong. That's what, that's what it says in 1, 1 Peter. Do good deeds that though they accuse you of doing wrong. So be prepared for that. As loving and as logical and as kind as we might be, uh, there will be those who accuse us of doing wrong. So be prepared for that as well. Um, secondly, um, leave the results to God. Engage in it, but leave the outcome to God. Has anybody here ever tried to change their own heart? It's hard, isn't it? It's impossible, actually, isn't it? Ever tried to change the heart of somebody else? Just not possible. We're not called to change anybody else's mind. We're not called to change anybody else's heart. We're called to be obedient. To share the answers that we have and the reasons why we believe what we believe and what we believe what is best for the society around about us. And we leave the results to God. You know what that does? It means that we don't have to enter into an argument. We don't have to argue somebody over to our point. We can leave it as it is. We can listen to people well. We can hear what they have to say. We can share what we believe. And we don't have to win the argument. Thirdly, um, Keep in mind the big picture. When we engage in this debate, engage in discussion, keep in mind what the big picture is. And the big picture is we want people to come to know Jesus. That's what we want in the discussions. 
you know, we don't necessarily want moral, non-believing people. We want people who know and trust and believe in Jesus. And that will shape the way that we engage in the conversation. And fourthly and finally, let's celebrate marriage as God intended it. And let's honor marriage as God intended it. For 50 years, most of our debates about marriage was how do we get out of it? In the last 10 years, we've changed to how many more how many people, more people can get into it. The debate has kind of shifted somewhat. And we need to see that part of it maybe as a positive. That marriage is good. And marriage is desirable. And marriage is a wonderful gift from God that we should be thankful for. So let's honor and celebrate marriage as God has given it to us. Let's not run it down or minimize it, but let's say, yes, it is a wonderful gift from God. Let's pray to him now, shall we? Lord God, we thank you that we um, can think about this issue this morning. Uh, we thank you that this world belongs to you. And uh, we thank you that it, it, no matter what happens and what governments decide and people do, this world will always belong to you. And thank you that you are doing something in this world and have done something in Jesus about our brokenness and about our sin. And thank you that you are about restoring lives to yourselves. Lord God, we pray that you would keep doing that within us. Lord, we pray that, that we wouldn't be proud or boastful. We pray, Lord, that we would be humble as we see what you have done for us in Jesus. And we pray, Lord God, that we might make that known to those around about us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.